0: Through Conversations, our goal is to share and explore mind-body paradigms to offer empowerment possibilities.
1: It was such a pleasure to be in conversation with Liz Stewart. Liz draws from 30 years of experience as a highly accomplished structural integration practitioner, aka Rolfing. She's a trainer and somatic supervisor consultant. Beyond her hands-on work, she provides one-to-one and group educational support for bodyworkers bodywork educators, mental health professionals, and coaches. Liz supports and challenges her clients to understand and make full use of themselves in their work. Her approach is engaging, connective, and supportive, much like the fascial network that holds our bodies together, and her work includes a strong emphasis on body awareness. She aids her clients in learning about their own body cues and triggers that speak in mysterious ways. Liz has been working online for the past eight years and brings her experience Structural integration, movement awareness, polyvagal theory, neurovascular techniques, modern group psychotherapy, trauma dynamics, decoding body language, and DARE attachment theory. Liz's work has been described as comprehensive, deeply transformative, highly intuitive, observant, and fun. In today's conversation, we spoke about Liz's history and what brought her to the SI world, what brought her to the Guild, where she has grown from and into, the importance of language and semantics to this field, why and how she developed her area of SI supervision, and the importance of supervision, networking, and connection for practitioners. One note is on the day of this call, there were outages on Zoom server side, and you will hear occasional delays and stutters from this, and we do apologize for that. That said, let's begin our talk.
2: Hi, Liz. Hey, Liz. Hi, you guys. Hi. All right. Liz, it's lovely to see you
0: via Zoom. We're fortunate that we get to see each other in person often. And yeah, if you could share a little bit of your history and what inspired you first of what why you discovered structural integration, what inspired you to become a structural integrator and teaching. And yeah, if we could just start to hear a little bit of your history, that would be awesome.
2: Well, thanks for having me on here, you guys. I'm happy to be here. So I got involved in uh, structural integration when I was 25 years old. So I'm 59 now. And I was a very, I was in Boulder. I just moved from San Francisco to Boulder. I worked for IBM and I was in management. And then I got my next level promotion into a headquarters staff job at IBM. And I had a pretty hard job there uh, where I was, helping to um, organize who was gonna be fired and, uh, or moved in different locations around the United States. So it was, I was a little young to make decisions and give messages to people. So I was very stressed. I also was pretty stressed in my family. Uh, I just was kind of an unhappy person back then. And I had a lot of struggles that were, um, I was looking for something besides psychotherapy to help me. And I had never had a massage in my life. I also have consistently struggled with my um weight. I my, my dad was the pioneering doctor for eating disorders in the United States. And so even being slightly chubby or at times more than slightly chubby, um, I got a lot of uh you know grief in my family because their their lens was very New York. Uh, how you look, how much you know, where you go to school, and I just didn't fit in in my family, which was highly academic. So I end up in Boulder, and I'm really struggling in every possible way emotionally. And I had a neighbor. I lived, if you know Boulder, I lived up Four Mile Canyon, up in near Wall Street and Salina, which are little mountain communities, and. I was a hippie and I was following the Grateful Dead around and by day IBM wearing the suit and by night a music lover and uh, my neighbor I was telling him how unhappy I was and he said well have you ever thought about rolfing and I had no idea what that was as I said I had never even had a massage so I said no I haven't and he said oh I want to introduce you to my rolfer so he introduced me to a woman in Boulder named Mimi Burker, and Mimi became my rolfer. And Mimi, uh, may she rest in peace, passed away a few years ago. Um, And I called Mimi up and she said, what's going on? And I said, I don't know, I just feel very unhappy. And she said, great, I like that kind of rolfing. If you were coming to me with a problem in your knee, I would probably refer you to someone else in her very thick Belgian, French, Italian accent that she had. She was European. So off I went to Mimi and having no idea, like completely new, I show up and I'm supposed to get into my, get down to my underwear. And I I was completely shocked that someone was gonna look at me in my underwear, felt very self-conscious. And yet when she touched me, I never ever had an experience of being touched this way that I felt somebody actually cared. Um, And they were touching me with care. And I do have a trauma history. So this was very valuable to me. And I, of course, wanted to come back. And so I began the 10 series with her. By my third session, I had a whole other experience, which was that two things happened. One was in the session, I had this experience that there was something inside of me that was for me. I was so used to giving everything away, taking care of everybody else, making sure that every, you know, I was a scared person, I would say, in life. And suddenly I thought, oh, there's something in here that's mine. And I get to feel and nourish and enjoy. And that started to unfold as deep creativity. And I began doing all sorts of art and um, making things by hand. And I like to hand sew and um, just be creative. And I became really highly creative. I had been as a kid, but it just sort of went away. And after that third session, it came back. And I was pretty amazed that my creativity would be that heightened after receiving body work. That I, after that session, I called my boss And I said, uh, very impulsively, I want to quit and I want to become a rolfer. And I was pretty fortunate. My boss said, oh, I've heard of this rolfing stuff. And Liz, I want you to do what you want, but don't quit. Uh, You haven't taken a lot of vacation. You've worked hard. You're a good employee. Go do what you need to do. And let's wait for a buyout, but take your vacation and get paid while you're studying. And so I did that and eventually I had a lot of vacation, So I was able to go to massage school, which is what was the protocol back then and get into more intensive psychotherapy, which was also a requirement as I remember at the Guild to do some psychotherapy. And I um, uh, started massage school. And then one day my boss called and said, there's a buyout. So I got a big chunk of money. And I got on an airplane, and the next class was in Sao Paulo, Brazil, with Peter Melchior. And I knew nothing except that I had completed my 10. Uh, I had a very supportive boss, and I was able to go study and have a little bit of money left, uh, hopefully, when I got back. So I went and trained in Brazil, and my teachers were Peter and um, uh, David Davis was the lead-in for Anatomy. And Nilsi Silvera, who owns a school in Brazil now, uh, was one of the assistants, and another assistant named Nelson Coutinho, also in Sao Paulo, who was a Jungian and a rolfer. Nilsi was a psychologist and a rolfer. Um, David was a rolfer and an anatomist, and Peter was the teacher. And they had all, at that point, left the Rolfe Institute and started the Guild. So I believe this was the second class at the Guild and possibly the first class in Brazil. And when I got to Brazil, it was kind of fascinating because it was a very little class. I had no idea that Peter was um, living about 10 minutes away from me. I lived in Lyons at at this point in my life. And just to backtrack a little bit, I learned more about the training program uh, when I had finished my series, my rolfing series, I met a woman named Gail Olgren, who now goes by Gail Rosewood, in a sauna up in the mountains. And we were all part of a group of friends. And she was married to a rolfer who she's no longer with anymore, but I believe they're still friendly. And uh, she sat with me in the sauna and I told her that I wanted to be a rolfer. And she said, you know, as much as you want to be a rolfer, I'd like to help you find the right teacher." And of course, I wanted her to be my teacher because I had met her and, you know, we had clicked. Uh But she really felt strongly that this man named Peter Melchior would be a very good fit for me. And that he wasn't at the Guild, uh, at the Institute. So I uh, went and explored both the Rolf Institute and the Guild. And, and Peter truly became the right match for me. So I ended up in his class. And the very first. Like for, yeah. Can
0: I, can I interrupt you for a second? So could you just share like, why, why the guild? Like what did you see between the two institutes that are, oh, it was are-
2: very simple actually. Uh, and, and remember I was, I'm a person that has really grown in this structural integration process. I was young. I was unhappy. I was really insecure. I had body shame. I didn't understand. I never had body work. So I was very raw and, and kind of heightened sensitively in a way that um, I had to feel safe in a place. So I, I was clear I wanted to be a Rolfer. So I went to the Rolf Institute. I walked in. It was on Pearl Street. And the first thing they said to me was, um, well, do you have your uh, $2 for the brochure? And I had no money. And I thought, I said, well, I don't have $2, but could I could I have one? I'll bring you $2. And they said, well, that's not how we work. You know, you have to, we have a a step-by-step process. And I said, okay, I'll come back. And for me, that meant I lived up in the mountains at that point. So I would come back, you know, the next time I was in town. So I went home and I thought about it and I thought. Well, that just didn't feel good to me. So I called Mimi back up and she said, "Um, oh, there's another school. Why don't you also talk to them, talk to both of them and see which one feels better. So then I called the guild and and Richard Stensteadbold answered the phone and he said, well, come on over. So down I went to pay my $2 to the Rolf Institute to get the handbook. Then I went over to Richard's and The greeting was just very different. And and besides whatever politics were going on, which I was not involved with at all, I basically went off of the fact that, wow, this place I feel really good at, this place I felt like um, not so good at and wasn't welcomed, Um, but that's okay. I'm still gonna study both these places. And they both had similar entry requirements with one exception which was that you had to write a paper at the Rolf Institute. And even though you had to write a paper at the Guild, you didn't do it until after the the first phase. And I have uh, learning challenges. I struggle with writing and reading and I have my whole life. And so I got scared of having to write a paper. They also had a selection committee where they would look at you and talk to you in front of, uh, you'd be in front of a panel and they would decide whether you'd be a good qualifier to be a rolfer. And that just felt way too intense for me. I was too new with with my own experience of my body that I didn't feel like I could do that, nor did I want to. And so I opted out and um, I went to the guild and it felt it was a really good place. It was a very good place for me, to be honest, until it wasn't. And that was many years later when it became not the right fit for me. Um, so, you know, back to just uh, so I chose the Guild and I went to Brazil and I had an amazing experience in Brazil And I also grew up around Brazilians. So picking up the language felt easy for me and the flow and the way there's a rhythm to Brazil. And I love to travel and I come from a very international family. So being around other cultures is really part of who I am was my identity. And Peter said something the first day which was pivotal for me. He said two things. One was um, be very careful about saying the words always and never they really uh, don't do well for us in our profession to be absolutists. And and that made a lot of sense to me. And the other thing that he said was he asked the class if anyone had ever heard of the Grateful Dead. And I was the only person that raised my hand. And and then he told a story about how, uh, from the song Trucking, uh, what in the world ever happened to Sweet Jane? And he said, well, she walked in for a session one day. And that's where I started to learn about what disintegration looked like. And and he told stories about the dead and his life and we really resonated. Uh, The other big thing that happened in my training that was pivotal to keep me very close to Peter was that in my auditing phase, I got a call when I was in auditing that my brother was very, very ill and had contracted uh, AIDS. And I have a a brother who identifies as gay and uh, was very, very sick. And I collapsed. I'm very close to my brother. And I had to finish my training. And at the same time, the family I was staying with uh, had very strong feelings about gay people, anti-feelings. And so I had to find a new place to live. And so Nilsi and and, uh, who was sharing her place with Peter or they were working together in the classroom, brought me in and they took care of me. They really helped me at a time in my life where I couldn't leave Brazil because uh, Pan Am airlines had just gone out of business and that was my ticket home Um, and I had no money. I had used all my money on my education. So even that chunk from IBM went to my education. So I was stuck and I was really scared. And Peter would um, spend time with me. Um, and I cried a lot. And he, he just spent time with me and was there with me, which helped a lot. And he also opened up to me about being a father and being um, a teacher and things like having to choose monogamy as a teacher, having to choose his family first and how he really struggled in being there for his kids a lot of the times and how I kind of filled a gap for him at that moment um, where I really needed parenting because I thought my brother was gonna die. Um, and, the, and just to fast forward, my brother is still living 30 years later. He's had cancer, he's lost a leg. Uh, and Rolfin has been the main thing that has helped him work. And Neil Powers has been his practitioner, his SI practitioner all these years. And so he's quite well. Um, But I came back to Boulder and I started a practice. And in Boulder back then, the who's who was here. So Emmett and Peter and Jan Sultan and Heather Wing at the time, Heather Starsong and Gail Olgren, and a lot of other people, but those, Tom Wing, those were the folks I knew. And uh, there was no mixing of uh, classrooms. I couldn't go study with teachers I wanted. So I started to knock on people's doors and ask them if I could spend a week with them and what that would cost me. And I was able to um, come up with a few hundred bucks and shadow different, I chose different women in the work because to me it felt very important. Ida Rolf had said we need women. Uh, doing this work, women teaching this work. And I I come from a teacher family. Um, I wanted to teach someday, I'd like teaching. I had taught at IBM. And so I knocked on Heather's door, I knocked on Gail's door and uh, Dorothy Nolte was one of my teachers. Stacey Mills was one of my teachers. Uh, There were other people because at the Rolf Institute, people were studying other things. And at the Guild, people were not. And I've always been, uh, I like to use the word ecumenical. I like to be part of uh, a large group and, and hopefully we believe in the same thing, but we come at it in different ways. And I had a very ecumenical uh, raising. My mom was an opera singer and she also loved to sing in, in houses of worship, even though we weren't really religious. But she always said, we we can go anywhere and hopefully belong, whether it's a synagogue or a family that is completely different from our family. So I carry this in in who I am as a a person. And um, so I started to study with Pilates people. I did the SE training very early on. Uh, I studied a little bit of Hakomi. I studied different types of trauma work. I went out and did some movement work. I studied Rolf movement and... Uh, With Heather kind of privately and with Gail privately. And and I studied deeply with Dorothy because she was teaching and I could take her classes. And uh, knocked on Jim Asher's door. Anyone that I felt like I could learn from. And I tend to like to keep a lineage uh, that is close to Ida Rolfe. So I studied with a number of students directly related to Ida Rolfe. And uh, that was the path I seemed to have chosen That worked well, but really studying with women felt very important because we work differently.
0: Yeah. Wow. You really had quite the, um, a list to, to pick their brains. That's, that's amazing. Hence why you're really good at what you're doing, but that's really, I, I feel like I've known quite a bit of your history just by being friends and colleagues, but I've, this was just so fun to hear because they learned so much more.
2: Well, it was fun studying all of that with people too, because I think I was a Yazi person before Yazi ever was created. Just the idea of go find your teacher and, you know, Rolfing to me and I'm using the word Rolfing because back then uh, structural integration wasn't so strong. Um, I wanted to study with Rolfers I wanted to study with people that had been in the field a long time and see what might work that feels good to me. Um, And so I did did follow that path with the idea that maybe I could hold a lineage as I got older, Uh, because I do love the work and I do believe also that the series has a lot of value. But even with that said, I wanted to study with people that didn't do serious work and, or who might, but also do other things like Jeffrey Birch. Um, I'd have to say Bruce Schoenfeld has been one of my most valuable teachers ever uh, because he's opened my eyes to how to put different systems together and still look at structure as the primary focus of our work and, and, you know, structural integration as the primary focus. So I, I really enjoy studying I'm just trying to think of what else would be helpful to talk about, about my history. Um, you guys have any other questions? Well, I mean,
0: you, I think because you're going to, you were saying how you're, you wanted to study with Rolfers and I think just for some, for clarification for some of our listeners that might not have heard other episodes that in fact, you were studying Peter was a Rolfer and because there was the, the Rolf Institute, a, disagreement for lack of or just not to go into great details and so there was a set of rolfers that went and created their own school that's correct and so kind of or correct me if if i'm wrong um just kind of the the reason for the split is rolf institute was maybe entered sprinkling in some other modalities to bring into structural integration where then the guild folks We're really like, no, we're going to we're going to stick to the 10 series.
2: Yeah, I I think that like anything um, valuable in the world, there are different flavors of everything. If we only had vanilla ice cream, I think I would probably not eat ice cream. So I I like variety. And I think that uh, we all come from our own history. I do have a strong psychology background. And our idea, my idea in the work as an SI practitioner is that well, my experience was that when I started to feel more connected to me and in relationship to myself and to others, then it's safe for me to differentiate and have a maturing experience. And that means to go find what calls me. And, and then hopefully people will be attracted to my flavor, just like I was really attracted you know, to other people that took the work and did something with it. Now, in regards to the Guild, the other thing I did want to mention was I went to the Guild. I also had to sell everything in my life because I couldn't afford the life that I had had. I had a nice car. I had a nice house. You know, I had a Porsche once in my life. And um, and so I sold everything. And I I ended up with my boyfriend, who became my husband, renting a cabin that was in Boulder at the time, was like $350 for the whole cabin, which you can't even get. You know, a step into a home for that fee at this point Um, and bought a 25 pound bag of rice, a 25 pound bag of beans. I started hitchhiking down the canyon and I am not religious, but I do believe in spirit very strongly. And I would ask the universe, like, could you send me a client? I need one. And um, all while this was going on, it's an interesting story. I called my parents and my my dad was a a physician at Columbia University and said, I need some financial help. And he said, well, you've chosen a path of quackery and I'm not going to help you. And uh, and I said, can we just separate this out that I'm your kid, but I have chosen a profession you don't like? Can I still have a relationship with you as a kid? And I had strain with my parents, but through the, pra- the process of sessions, I started to have a better relationship and I healed my broken relationship with my family. Which was huge for me, which is why I so strongly believe that relationship is a part of our work. It's not just me working on someone, it's working with them, helping them orient differently in the world and connect to me as a person, not just to themselves. And um, I said to my dad, You know, Ida Rolf went to Barnard and you're on faculty at Columbia Medical School. And he went and checked it out and he said, There's no record of her. And I went back to the guild. And at the guild, at that point, I was working, cleaning the classroom, taking photographs, doing anything to immerse myself to study. Um, and so I was the helper. I was kind of the, the administrator, the house cleaner, the, the, the go-to person. Um, so I could pay for more education. And Richard Stensudbold, who was the president back then, said, well, I don't know what to tell you. And um, here's Ida Rolf's son. Call him. And so I called um, uh, one of the Demerleys. I think it was Alan Demerle. I'm not sure which one. The one who lived in Maryland. And I told him my story. And he said, I'm not going to help you. I'm sorry. And then within a few weeks, he sent me uh, Ida Rolf's diploma from uh, Barnard. Which I sent to my dad, and he submitted it to the uh, people of importance at Columbia and Barnard. And he then started to support me more than ever. And he said, Anytime you have questions that are anatomical or disease oriented, please call me. And we really made a full circle to where I, I got back in with my family, which was why I got Rolf in the first place. I was very unhappy. Um, so I feel like I, I helped. I helped our community, you know, put her back on the map in the community that she might not be known in. And that felt good to me. Um, yeah, I don't know where I was going after that.
0: Well, you made me um, just to share a story. So my dad, not a doctor, but was in the medical field as a salesman sale- selling hardware for your spine and things like that. And he kind of, in a similar way, a little different but when i decided to become a roller he kind of had a problem with it because he's like i don't want my daughter touching naked people i'm like well they're not naked first of all they're partially clothed <laughs> and then he had fallen um uh, rollerblading and he had hurt his wrist and so i was home visiting and he was like so what 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 are you doing i i'm in pain can you do something so i'm working his shoulder and he's like, but Nikki, my pain is in my wrist. I was like, I know I'm getting there, but there's, there's alignment situation. And I worked on him. And, and then I, the kind of touch was a little much. He's like, this isn't relaxing. This, this doesn't feel that great. I'm like, well, it's not, a, it's, it's not a massage. It's I'm kind of connecting with your tissue. And so basically it kind of to prove to him what rolfing was. And then he was like, That's it's a miracle. My wrist doesn't hurt. And you're working on my shoulder.
2: (laughs) That's right. In fact, I'll just double up on that, Nikki, because I didn't feel well about a week ago and you gave me a little work. And it was so amazing how you worked on my shoulder, which was one of my many aches, but all the other aches just sort of went away. And uh, I think that's I'm, I'm really glad you were able to help me. And, you know, you're doing the work and that the work really works. So the other thing I want to mention about the Guild just briefly is that um, for me, it's very important that I use the term structural integration. And it took me a few years to really not say Rolfing uh, because it's so, you know, Rolfing is Boulder. And I think that's the thing. If you're in Boulder, Rolfing is the, the Rolf Institute is the school. And then the Guild was also the school. Uh, but I did believe that, the brand that you guys pay for, there's a reason why you pay for that brand and why you pay for your education. Just like there's a reason why I paid to go to the Guild. And it is a challenging thing when you have a word or Heller workers have a word, or SOMA folks have a word, or anatomy trains have their word. And those of us that are generalists with the term structural integration, it's always been a mouthful, but I always felt like it's very important for me to honor where I come from and honor the work. And one of the things that Peter used to say, even when he was a rolfer, was that he chose to use the word structural integration because Ida Rolf talked about it and that it meant something. And having listened, and I don't know if the listeners have access to these, but they are out there, all these audio files of her, it's very interesting to listen to her talk about Uh, how she explains the work and her process of talking about the work as rolfing or as structural integration or as other names that she had used um, to create her body of work. So it didn't start as the term rolfing. Uh, But I just think that for me personally, when I go into a room, if I'm teaching, if everybody in there is a rolfer, I'm going to ask them how they would like to talk about the work. Collectively, and do I have permission to use their term? And if I don't, I don't. And it rarely happens, but when it has happened, I think it's important to respect where people come from uh, and to use their language. And even how it's flowing out in the world today with a lot of talk about what is appropriate or okay to talk about. If I am Jewish, I can talk about being Jewish. If I am not Jewish, I might not want to make a Jewish joke, or if I am gay, I can talk about being gay, or if I am a trans person. There's a lot of importance these days on speaking who you are and not um, necessarily crossing lines if you're not of that culture. Um, and it's, it's, a, it's a tricky conversation to find your landing place, but I think it does have value and, and I'm still learning. Yeah,
0: thanks for you know bringing that up because in our previous episodes there, there is that there is a, that conversation of and I think kind of where where Andrew and I have had a lot of fun in this is because we're not speaking just specifically to people who have graduated from the Rolf Institute. We've really casting the net to to everybody who is really in doing the work in the greater good of structural integration and it could be people that have graduated from the rolf institute from the guild or it's something else of any kind of like somatic practices and it is and it is tricky because I think again from our from the history of the school there is such a charge around mm-hmm. the name rolfing and I know for myself when I graduated I kind of would get you know my knickers in a twist when someone who wasn't from the Rolf Institute called themselves a Rolfer. I'm not that way anymore because I, I don't, I don't want to contribute to that energy anymore because I do feel like it's great that there are so many different flavors of this work because these different flavors become compatible to all different types of people. And, um, but yeah, there. I mean, there is a place of honor that I do come from that I did graduate from the Rolf Institute, but also, um, also not as
1: attached well, Nikki, to the name. I'll, I'll say I still do somewhat get my. I don't really wear knickers, but I, I get my undies in a in a bunch. But that's more out of habit. I kind of recognize it. it's a bit of a habit, but it's also, of, um, you know, learning. When I, when I was just in Vienna, I was I sat in for a day with Alesh in the European SI uh, training, which was great. And I, I remember when I would talk, I would be like, "Rolfing, oh, oh, I'm sorry, SI," and it's just it's a, it's a habit. Yes. I, I think to some extent there is a it's semantics, and then it's it's history, and it's also trademark. So I I kind of float between where I I don't really care, but there is this like seed that's been planted that, you know, it comes up a bit. And then I have to question myself a little. Do I really mind? And my silly thing is if the person's a good practitioner, I don't mind. And if I don't really feel that they're a good practitioner, or if I don't feel that they're honoring the work, I mind, which is my uh, own.
2: <laughs> me too. Me too. And, and, you know, I actually do mind. I, I do mind that um, I want to value and and be clear that I like where I come from. I like the school I went to regardless of anybody else's opinion about my school, their school, I think there's so much value when we choose a place uh, to start that uh, we all have our reasons for it. And and I care about that just as much as, um, you know, that there's something about pride of where you come from and, and why call it something that it's not. With that said, though, I, I do think semantics make a big difference in our work, and the reason why I do care is that when I'm in a teaching or a support role for, for graduates or students, having language in our work makes a huge difference. So you could say to somebody, if they say, well, what do you see? And if I were to say, well, you you look twisted or, oh, boy, or um that can't feel good or, or <laughs> stuff like that. Yeah. There's so many other ways to relate to someone by saying, well, you have a rotation or there's a side bend or it looks like there's a you you place your weight a certain way versus putting a, a, a judgment with how you're speaking to a person. So I aim to practice that all the time because I also have this um, and it's my own belief system that. I need to keep my professional hat on when I'm even socializing with my professional peer group. So even, and this is might be going way off on a tangent, but you will not see me drinking at a uh, social event filled with structural integrators. Uh, Because for me, not being a seasoned drinker at all, I, I really don't drink, but if I were, I know that when you drink, people say loose things. And if I'm at a conference or if I'm at a Yazi meeting or, or even a social gathering, um, I also am representing myself as a professional. And I've seen enough over the years where people say things, including me, that I wish I hadn't said. So I, I've kind of learned that, which might be a tangent to go towards what I wanted to talk about with supervision and mentoring, if, if that's an okay direction to head and unless you guys have other it
1: it, yeah it is it is i just want to put my own insecurity out there is that as you were saying you wouldn't even be drinking and i was like my mind already formulated the next thought and i was thinking i've been drinking tea this whole time she's so upset i'm being so rude just drinking then realizing where it was going
2: yeah alcohol i should be specific i have my tea also i'm a andrew i'm a huge tea drinker so um that that is my drink of choice, actually.
1: Well, I will say, Nikki just sent me some amazing tea. So, uh, you know, maybe if you're lucky, she can send you some too, or some of this uh, this really cool tea she just sent. But, but let's let's go into your 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 mentoring.
2: Okay. Well, she might just put it next to my door, or maybe we could just go shop together since we are office mates.
0: <laughs> Thanks, Andrew. You just ruined my my my
2: office holiday guests. <laughs> Very excited. Uh, <laughs> so, well, let me talk a little bit about the, the I call it supervision, it could be called mentoring, it could be called apprenticing, it could be called study group, support, whatever. Um, but again, with semantics, I, I really studied these words to better understand them for me. Um, that uh, mentoring for me means somebody comes to learn how I work. And supervision or consultation or support uh, might mean I'm gonna help them understand and cultivate their style. And I think there's room for both. Uh, But in my mind, I chose because of a psych and analytic background that I bring. Um, I know that in um, nursing and medicine and psychology, psychotherapy, social work, even in um, certain types of bodywork work throughout uh, England or the UK, there's a requirement for supervision. And it's a, it's a place to talk about in, in, their, in their language, uh, case studies or anything going on interpersonally uh, with your clients or patients. And I have been receiving that kind of supervision and mentoring for about, at this point, 20 years. And I started because I taught a class, uh, in fact, Peter Melchior, uh, just certain little Peter gems, which are different than other people might have in their Peter world. I, I got to assist Peter over 16 years and I was very blessed to have him at the birth of my daughter. And I was able to be with him on his last day of life. And so we were close and um, and I loved him and I miss him and I aim to carry his lineage on as strongly as I possibly can. We were office mates and uh, friends and his he was also friends with uh, my father. They were the same age and they would get together regularly for a, an espresso and several hours of conversation. Uh, they both loved poetry and the arts and um, other things in the world. So he was very much in my life. So Peter at one point said, Liz, uh, I don't think you're going to have a future at the Guild. And uh, I want to encourage you to step out and do your own thing. And I did end up teaching at the Guild, but this was before that happened. I I left the Guild. I came back and I started teaching there. And then I left again. And, And I left because it was there was nothing wrong with the guild. It was what I needed to do for me and and my passions. So I, uh, Peter got me in touch with a school in Utah, and I went there and it wasn't a match for me, uh, meaning a massage school that had a structural program. And then he introduced, uh, he encouraged me to go talk to a man named Herbert Grossman. Uh, I don't know if you guys have interviewed Herbert, but He's definitely worth interviewing. Um, And Herbert has a school out of uh, Nuremberg, Germany. And so I went and taught a six day class at his school. And um, I really liked it. I did not want to be on his faculty or anything, but I liked going out and teaching something. And that, a few of the folks in that group asked me to come back and teach them and reteach them the series in a way that I, they could have more input from other teachers. And I said, I wouldn't until they graduated from their program, because I just felt strongly, I don't think it's a good idea to bring a teacher in until you're finished studying what you started wanting to study. And so they finished, and then they invited me to to do a recipe review. And I went to Berlin, and I had a wonderful translator. And I started this six-day class, which would be three days on, a day off, three days on teaching a post 10, three series. And what happened was not that, we never even got to that. What happened was one of the students said to me in Germany, are you Jewish? And I um, had no idea that I would have such a physical reaction. I got really scared. Now with that said, I, I don't practice Judaism. I did not grow up with a lot of religion but I did grow up culturally Jewish in New York, which New York and New Jersey, which says something, it's a very strong community back there. And I have relatives that are quite religious, but I had a body response and I got very scared. And what came out of my mouth was, um, well, what's it like to have me here rather than me answering their question, what's it like to be here? And, We ended up having a a very different type of class. And I was very grateful at that point that I had studied SE. I had studied other body centered therapies and I was in therapy. And um, I came back to Boulder, really rattled. The class was good, but there was a woman in the class who would put on her sunglasses because she didn't want me to see her eyes. There were students, most of them were older and they had all grown up more in the Eastern block of Germany who had learned Russian as children, not English. And and so there was tension and we had to work with the tension. And so we did, and I ended up going back there for the next three and a half years, every six months. And we slowly worked our way into studying the series. And it was lovely. And I still have connections with those students. Uh, But I came back to Boulder And I read a book about um, uh, transference and counter transference and I read a book about groups, group dynamics. And so that began my my deep dive into studying group work, group dynamics and getting supervision. And I also uh, kept teaching and I realized as a teacher and as an assistant still at the guild and then teaching my own stuff, things happen in a classroom Where you either have very strong feelings towards a teacher or you don't like a teacher, or there's a student that just drives you nuts, or every time your partner touches you, you feel something that doesn't, you know, it's them clearly, it couldn't possibly be you, or, you know, things come up. Or a teacher doesn't like you. I don't know if you ever witnessed that, where a teacher has a dislike to their assistant or to a student and everybody feels it. Or there's the school. There's tension between a student and the school. All these things happen. So I met a man in Boulder who was legendary to work with groups and with this idea that we bring our own history into the classroom or into every session. Not only we, meaning practitioners, but the clients or the students do also. And often they can connect and often they don't connect at all. And how do you work with that? Uh, because we're not taught any of that in our training. How do you work with the interpersonal uh, stuff that isn't just love? You know, we, we tend to like really like something and then if we don't, we don't know how to work with the chaos. So I started supervision and I started studying group work and I studied three different types of group work. One was a Buddhist approach, one was a trauma approach, uh, that also included um, organizations and what happens when there are when there's chaos within the organization, what happens with relationship. And then I studied uh, an analytic uh, approach, a psychoanalytic, based on how we hold things in our body from when we were little before we had words, and how does that show up as adults when we're working closely with other people. People, whether it's as a therapist or as a business person or as a body worker. And I am still studying all these things now. So I started supervision to understand that, um, oh, I had feelings in Germany. Of course, I had feelings in Germany, being the token Jewish person and not having any support or anyone to talk to. And when I got to talk about it, I realized I'm not so different than these people. We all went through some kind of generational trauma that we were not part of but we were part of that because we inherited it and you could read between the lines here could bring that down to the the whole structural integration and all the different schools but this was very strong and the more I talked about it the more I realized we have common ground here and I think that I want to begin doing this work for the structural integration community and is it possible to pioneer a program that allows when students graduate to have a place to go because what I discovered was that in my own experience as a student and as a teacher, as a student, I just want to call my teacher up because I have questions, but they're off teaching or they're in their practice and they don't really have time or I don't know if you guys have noticed, we're not always great at calling people back uh, when you're a teacher. Um, i know i'm i'm uh, definitely guilty of that and i thought why not have a dedicated person who you know knows the work or knows a chunk of the work their perspective but also has some skill in how to speak with people and help them understand some of these feelings they're having and also be able to talk to them if they really are struggling with a session or with a client you know so in so i started offering individual sessions and I started offering groups. And I also started offering groups for teachers because even teachers struggle and they really have no place to go to. And schools are there to, in my experience and my observation to uh, create a practitioner and not necessarily offer um, that emotional support that students and faculty might need. Um, so I went off to to launch this, and it's been an ongoing process because uh, I'm not fully organized as a human. You know, I, I have my own struggles of getting my administrative paperwork done and, and launching an announcement and how to do it. You know, I'm, I'm really a practitioner at heart, so putting on the the hat of can I be an administrator and and gather people has been a little tricky for me. But even with that said. I have a number of groups that have been meeting for years online. So I've been on Zoom for 12 years and I've had groups that have been running that long with people coming and going. And I've had teacher groups so that there's a safe place for teachers. And these are all done with ideas of ways you would work with your own clients. So I try to hold, like I mentioned earlier with languaging, I aim to hold the structure of structural integration in the frame of supervision or mentoring or apprenticeship or whatever word feels comfortable for the person seeking it. Um, that we start out with an agreement like you would start with a client. You know, Are you looking for a series? Are you looking for work as you want it? You know, non-series work. Uh, how we close each session, I, I find valuable. It's another thing I learned from Peter is to make enough time for closure uh, because it can be really, um, uh, um, what's the word? It could be um, uncomfortable to say, oh gosh, we're out of time. And you either go over in a way you wish you hadn't or you have to stop suddenly and you haven't had time to actually have a integrative ending with the client. And there are ways to do integrative endings each session That could be very quick, Uh, but also for the practitioner or the teacher to have a place to talk about other things. For example, in one of my groups that has been running the longest, and these folks are very connected to have a community. They have each other. Whether they meet with me every other week or not, they can reach out to each other. And we've had to talk about things like masking, not masking, um, vaccination, not vaccinating. Um, parents passing away, children having diseases, being married and struggling, not being married and struggling, Um, struggling with um, how do I bring my work and my family together, life events, the pandemic to be being a big one, but they had other people, they have a cohort to talk with and grow with, which has been incredibly meaningful uh, for all of us involved. Uh, And to have relationship, because I do find in our work that we are alone in our work and our community becomes our client. And if we actually had community versus telling our clients how we feel, which I used to do, I mean, I will be the first one to say I overshared with my clients for many years until I learned because it wasn't taught to me. And I do think it's being taught more these days, uh, professional boundaries and professional ethics. to have a sense of a place to go to that you can really drop in. So it's, even though I'm trained as a psychotherapist, it's not psychotherapy, it's professional support where you have space and room and clarity around what can be said and can't said in the privacy uh, of a group or individual work with me to um, strengthen your practice. So some of it's educational, some of it's supportive, some of it's community building, and a lot of it is um, so that no one has to be isolated or alone, uh, especially in these times where um, there's a lot of fragmentation going on. I think that's awesome what you're
0: offering because I found when I had a, my practice in New York City, and I, you know, I was you know in my mid twenties, going into early thirties, and I was also seeing a union. Analysts and for my own stuff but then as my practice grew it and I I knew it was happening kind of in real time but now actually really stepping away from it and looking at some of the sessions because I that appointment was weekly I did not change that at all and because it was a bit of a lifeline for me to to process some of the the stuff that was coming up with clients and the, what they're bringing to me and how do I handle it? And, and also working with boundaries. Cause I had some intense people that I worked with or, and then people who were challenging my boundaries. Like I would definitely by one person was being groomed as their mit- mistress and being like, Whoa, how, how did that come up? And I, it was such a safe place. And I think that really helped me with my pro- professionalism to have a place to go and like, process in to talk with. And so I think what you're offering is similar to what what we need as practitioners to be able to again just what I just said process what's going on in our practices and and to hear other uh, opinions or advice on how to maybe handle a situation or a, an approach and things like that.
2: Yeah. Well I, I do think also that I think I ended up there because I do find therapy to be very valuable and I am not, um, my mind does not work anatomically. So I do like touch. I love touch. I love our work. And I found as a teacher that there are much better people out there to teach the actual art and craft, or some might say for some people, technique uh, of the work. And I want to help people find those teachers. My my great skill set might be in how to open, how to close, and how to do tracking. Those are the things I'm very passionate about, how to put things together, uh, where I might like to teach. But when it comes to this other piece, um, I do think that it's important to find someone to go to that doesn't tell you how to do it, but to help you strategize how you could do it. And a lot of times there's a a feeling that if somebody, well, it used to happen to me, I would go to one of these uh, legends, I would call them. And sometimes they were second and third generation, but they were interesting people for me. And they wouldn't actually help me cultivate how to do anything. They just said, well, this is what I do and this is what I would do. Versus saying, what are you doing? What's not working? What's coming up? Have you thought about this? even if it's strategy for a session, um, to, to find a way to get the practitioner to come out more. And it also helps feel like you have an attachment or a safe relationship with someone that will help you grow in your, in your career path. And for some, it's helping people stop doing the work. There, I've worked with plenty of people that just don't fit in this work and they end up going somewhere else where they're a much better match. Um, so closure or exiting really does have value.
0: Yeah. And I think you're speaking to the power of words, which I feel like I have to make sure that um it wasn't misunderstood that I did not become someone's mistress.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I didn't hear it that way. At all. Okay.
0: Afterwards I was like, uh oh. But just with the 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 languaging and things like that, that um um yeah. So I just wanted to clarify uh, that for any kind of. <laughs> I'll,
1: I'll <laughs> give a, I'll give a little more languaging, which is to say that when I hear you, Liz, basically sounding like you being a networker, but growing up Jewish, I can say that that's a very nice, you're like a shaddock on it, which is the, uh, I probably pronounced it wrong, it's the Yiddish word for a matchmaker. So yeah, it's just or a uh,
2: maven versus matchmaker. Yeah yeah yeah. yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. Which I just sort of laugh at because I, I have that same sort of thing. I think it's very cultural as well well of this. You want to help people. You want to find the right sort of fit. And it, to, to go along also sort with of what Nikki was saying and to draw another step, one thing I found really helpful in my own practice is finding one or two people from whichever practice and being in contact with them. So in my Rolf movement training, I met someone who went to new school, but we hit it off really well. And it's been so helpful to have that whether we talk once a month or whenever, just to to talk about the work with somebody who understands it. Well, While I love my wife greatly, she doesn't understand. And, and to share that, we don't get that reciprocal. So whether it's me with her, or where you're offering being in a group and having that support of well, this this is what, what happened or this is where I've struggled. It's actually been one of the greatest things for me about starting this podcast is I've had a few times where I've just struggled with something and I've reached out to someone we spoke with and said, hey, I just got a quick question because we've already developed that rapport and they've provided some suggestions that have just been like, oh yeah, that, that's wonderful, so.
2: Yeah. And yeah. yeah, to be honest, I think the other piece of why I do it besides it just comes naturally for me or the joke in my family is my brother, Ted knows everybody. My brother, John knows everybody else and everyone else that's left, I know. You know, like in my family, we we, know, we talk to a lot of people It's just nature for us. But I do, I provide supervision or mentoring whatever the word is that people like um, because I've probably made every, almost every mistake out there. Um, And mistake is my own term. You know, things that I consider a mistake uh, where I've struggled in my practice. And I think that there's nothing better than to have someone that can identify with you and is willing to tell you because a lot of people uh, won't disclose. And I think, uh, you know, there's a certain amount of disclosure that can be productive for a practitioner to hear. Like, oh yeah, I've had to cut a session short or, you know, I had vacation, I wanted to get out of there. Or yeah, I look at the clock a lot with certain clients and I've had to study that in myself. Or, um, you know, I've never dated a client, but I know that happens. And if that were to, you know, to me in the role I'm in, There's nothing that's wrong. It's learning how to understand it and to work with it and to find your way through it rather than judge it. And so when someone comes and says, I've done this and I'm having a lot of shame around something I did with a client or even another practitioner in a class, the main thing is to normalize it like we would do in the body to find the middle, to find that middle layer where there's ease. And if we can find middle, then there's room to expand in different directions. And for the, the person who's coming to me or the group that's talking, for them to recognize that everything is fair game. We just have to find languaging for it and comfort for it and not over, get overstimulated. Uh, even when it's high, it can be very overstimulating. Like I'm doing a webinar next week um, with a another teacher who is uh, not wanting to be vaccinated, and I chose to be vaccinated, and we're going to talk about how we work in our in our practice. And we've had to have a lot of conversations so we could find middle for each of us, and to find a a boundary to wrap the conversation around so that we don't get into our personal feelings around vaccination, but we talk about how do we support ourselves in our practice around this pandemic that we're all in. And how do we stay safe? And how do we keep our practice our, our like Nikki, you're in my office. How do how do I do my best to keep my office safe, myself safe, my client safe, whether my client is vaccinated or not? Same with this other person. So finding that that middle place can be a really powerful versus finding the polar the polarizing place, which I have observed because I started the private page for structural integrators. And I started another page uh, tracking the recipe that I learned from the private page not to even invite in dialogue with the second page. It's just a place to post notes and have, you know, learn and study where the private page has been very polarizing over the years. And, and it can be cruel at times. And I think if we can learn to speak to each other in a way that is inviting and spacious, it helps us in our practice and in our life. Yeah. I think
0: that's, that's all very, very, very wonderful. Love what you're offering and so necessary.
2: I will also just mention Nikki that I aim to keep my fee very low for a group uh, Supervision, because I know that we all don't make a lot of money. Some of us do better than others. Some of us live in higher economic areas than others. And so I make it available. So if someone has no money, I still take them in a group. If someone has a lot of money, they don't overpay. Uh, I, I make it available for the people who are interested in being in a group because I want people that want to be there. I, I oh, think wanna... that's
0: a good, a lovely offering. And so great that there, there's a, a price scale in some way, just because I think, again, I've said this again, it's what you're offering is so needed and necessary. And I think some people might not even consider it because there's, they're overwhelmed with overhead, or maybe, you know, I was just in this moment too. I shared it with you, like, oh my gosh, clients have moved. Clients are feeling better. And then had a moment of like, oh my God, what's December going to look like? Right. And I want to just share that for any newbies or just kind of, I think this is a common thing. You know, I've been doing this for quite some time. I settled into like, okay, well, I'll just make this time productive. And sure enough, the last week, what's your availability next week? I need to come in. <laughs> I have an out-of-town person who, or who moved and like, oh my gosh, what can we do over Zoom? So just trust in the process that they clients will come. <laughs>
2: yeah, it, it waxes and wanes, you know, and, and we all have our seasons that are busy and others that are empty. And I used to have a traveling practice for years. And, you know, that would make my work at home non-existent. And, and so being able to talk about these things, the more I would talk about it, the more I created a bolder practice. And then I had home because that's what I was needing home at that point. Uh, my marriage had failed and I needed to be home with my kid. I couldn't fly around the world like I loved I love to travel. Um, it just wasn't going to work. So I think talking about it, naming things, whether you believe in. Uh, You're faith-based, you're universally based, you're you're science-based. It doesn't matter. I think that if we get it out, uh, something kind of magically happens that keeps us fluid and moving. And I do it because I love this work. Um, You know, people ask me when I'm going to retire, people that are not SI folks. And I'm like, why would I retire? Uh, I'll just slow down. or. I'll, I'll find my way to stay connected in this work because it's what keeps me, um, it keeps me happy. I I love what I do. You're shaking your Uh, head. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I think that's a great, a great way to end on those, those words. It's a really beautiful way to close out. I I am shaking my head in like, yes, but people won't see this only, they only, we only release audio. We just get to see you, but it's a lot of what you say is, uh, Resonating with with me because I'm I'm I've had a traveling practice for 12 years and I'm in the process of stopping that or slowing that down. So it's like there's something even just hearing like, oh, I'm not alone.
2: (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. 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 Actually, Um, that in um, in closing, the thing I would love to share is uh, I love what you guys are doing, and I know Andrew, you'd reach out to me a while back, and in true human Liz form, I was. I had too much going on that I couldn't focus at all. And I really appreciate you coming back around to me um, because I really wanted to do this with you. And even having a a strong practice, I still feel alone at times. And doing this with you guys really takes that feeling and dissipates it. And I just feel really connected to other people right now, which is to me, what our work is about, it's a choice. I can choose to be alone or I could choose to be in community. And community can be a lot harder, but it really has its, um, there's so much to it. And, and Peter said in an advanced class that I assisted him in years ago, ultimately this work is about uncovering the love that exists in a human. And um, I think that what you're doing is bringing that part of me out to share with others right now. So I really, I really appreciate um, you having me on today.
1: Well, it's our pleasure. And then so much love in you. I mean, I remember we've only really talked on the phone once before, and I reached out to you out of the blue because I needed someone for an Niasse thing. We had a lovely talk and I just, I just remember leaving and being like, I love this lady. And I think I spoke to, uh, I think maybe Meg uh, Kennedy because oh, yeah. you were connected. <laughs> She's like, yeah, she's great. You know, it was just like, oh wow, this person is so, you know, you're, you're, you have a lot of love.
2: Well, yeah, it takes love to to talk love, I guess. We're all here together. But thank you for seeing that in me. Yeah. Well, I can echo that
0: too because I remember the first time I met you, I came to see you for a session. I was a third, like just after. Was it my first trimester? I just went in my second. And we you're like, No, I'm not going to work on you I don't work on pregnant people at that time. And, and so I just sat there with, and we just chatted, and you had your little black dog, and we just hung out for, I don't know, for an hour. Yeah,
2: I remember that. And my <laughs> beautiful a good office. Chat. beautiful that? office, my beautiful office, which I miss, but I love yeah. my new office even more. But yeah, it was really special. Yeah. I, will, well, I will, um anybody yeah. that
0: wants to mentor or have supervision, I highly recommend Liz. I have the fortunate to be able to be close to her and see her in the hallway and has also been a great support to me as um, coming back to Boulder with a practice. So, so highly, how do highly fa- recommend it. Yeah.
1: How do people find you, connect you? How do they do all that sort of stuff, Liz?
2: Um, well, the best way to find me is, is well, the, the worst way to find me is to call me on the phone. Uh, so if you call me, you might never hear from me because uh, I get a lot of spam. So I don't answer my phone a lot. But the best way is to contact email is liz at liz Stewart, S-I, dot com. My website is liz Stewart, S-I, dot com, where you can also email me from there. And most of the work I do right now is online, um, but if you're in Boulder uh, and uh, you want to come meet me in person, I am here.
1: Oh cool. uh, well, um, we'll put those links in our in our notes as well, so people will see. It's been, it's been such an honor uh, and pleasure to to chat with you and to see you actually in person,
2: face to face. Yeah, it's nice to uh, see you in person too, Andrew. And- it's kind of fun to see you, Nikki, online. So. Yeah,
1: like you guys see each other in person all the time. Um, but yeah, it's been great. Thank you for it, and we'll we'll talk again, hopefully another time, for to talk about forehanded uh, treatments.
2: I would love to come back, and and I would love to talk about how to work forehanded in a way that is really productive for learning and for the practitioners, and mostly for the clients. So thanks for having me, no, you guys. Thank you, Liz. There. Yeah.
1: Okay. Bye. Bye. Bye thanks for listening to us at Touching Into Presence. We hope you enjoy today's conversation. You can find out more about Liz at LizStewartSI.com and contact her at Liz at LizStewartSI.com. If you enjoyed today's episode, we'd appreciate if you'd leave a positive review of the podcast and subscribe to it through the platform of your choice. When you do this, it really helps other people find us and we greatly appreciate your support. We look forward to hearing back from you and seeing you on our next conversation at Touching to Presence. Bye-bye.